The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. How can engineering professionals be more creative and innovative? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I will be talking with the great Stu Wallish. Stu is kind of a legend in his own right in the world of civil engineering, and I remember watching many of his webinars or lunch and learn webinars during my career as a civil engineer. He has many credentials, including a licensed professional engineer. He's been an independent consultant for about the last 20 years, providing engineering leadership management and education training services. And he was on an episode of the podcast way back when, on episode 23, where he talked about goal setting for engineers. And of course, today he's going to talk about how using brain knowledge can enhance creativity and innovation to help civil engineers become a better version of themselves. Now, before we dive in with Stu, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free. So I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Collier's Engineering and Design. Collier's Engineering and Design is a multidiscipline engineering firm with over 1,800 employees in 63 offices nationwide and growing fast. Collier's Engineering and Design maintains an internal culture that is nurtured through the promotion of integrity, collaboration, and socialization. Their employees enjoy hybrid work environments, continuous career advancement, health and wellness offerings, and programs and projects that have a positive impact on society. Collier's Engineering and Design stays on the cutting edge of technology and their entrepreneurial approach to expansion provides personal and professional development opportunities across the firm. Leadership's dedication to the well-being of their employees and their families is demonstrated throughout the wide range of benefits and programs available to them. For more information, visit the career page on their website at colliersengineering.com. I also want to mention what we're doing at EMI real quickly in terms of learning and development. We've got some great courses that can really help your professionals transfer their skills back to the job. We have a people leadership course, levels one and two, a project management fundamentals course, and a seller doer business development course. These courses are offered regularly. You can enroll your engineers or engineering professionals, maybe they're surveyors, geologists, scientists, into these courses or we can do them just for your firm if you have enough people. We could even take it one step further. We can customize our core curriculum to include some of your language, verbiage, and even some of your project case studies. For more information, check us out at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Click on the upcoming training button at the top of the website, or give us a call, 800-920-4007. Again, that's 800-920-4007. All right, let's jump in today's episode on innovation and creativity for engineers. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome our guest onto the podcast for today. Stu Wallace is an independent consultant. He had a very successful career in the world of civil engineering. I took many of his webinars during my day as a civil engineer, and I'd like to welcome him back to the podcast. Stu, welcome aboard. I'm glad to be here, Anthony. Thank you very much. 
So, Stu, it's great to have you back on the Civil Engineering Podcast. We had you on quite a long time ago. We talked about goals and goal setting in that episode. Today, we're going to talk about innovation and creativity for engineers. But before we go there, Stu, in your own words, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your background and what you do on a daily basis today? I'm a professional engineer. I have worked in government. I've worked in consulting business. And I've also uh, been employed in uh, academia. For the last 20 years, I've been an independent consultant. And as an independent consultant, I sometimes provide advice to technically oriented organizations about non-technical topics. I sometimes do education and training. You mentioned webinars. And I do some writing, research and writing of books. What I do on a daily basis, well, it's highly varied. But for example, this morning I worked on a presentation I'm giving in about a week. And the title of the presentation is Quality, What Is It and How Do We Achieve It? This is a topic that I've been interested in, studied it for many years, continue to uh, improve my presentation of it. So uh, tomorrow I might be working on something very different. But I a variety of things that I'm able to do and the satisfaction of seeing them produce useful results. And Stu, for those listeners that are not familiar with your engineering background, can you talk a little bit about where you spent your career, what part of civil engineering? The best way to explain that is to go back to my childhood. I was raised in a small town in the northern half of Wisconsin on the uh, shore of Lake Michigan, and there was a highway between our home and the lake. And I can remember as a small boy, my mother walking me across the highway, taking me down to the beach, and there was a creek there that flowed into the lake. And I vividly recall playing in the water, digging wells, digging channels, building dams, building levees, and just be enthralled by water. And I learned later on that it was probably in late high school that if I became a civil engineer, I could, quite frankly, continue to play with water and be paid for it, which I did for about 20 years. My specialty was hydrologic, hydraulic modeling of watersheds, stormwater management, floodplain management, everything to do with water. And to this day, I'm fascinated by water, but I did reach a point in my career where I tired of doing mostly technical work. Maybe we can get into a little about that later. So let's get into that now, Stu. You authored a book called Introduction to Creativity and Innovation for Engineers. Tell us what this book is about and explain to our listeners kind of the distinction between creativity and innovation, in your opinion. The book is designed to be both a textbook for undergraduate engineers and also a reference book for practicing engineers. And it was motivated by my observation that creativity and innovation are often viewed as being sort of a matter of nature. That is, we're sort of born that way or we're not. And because of a variety of experiences I had, I concluded that it's more a matter of nurture than it is of nature. That is, we can learn how to be more creative and innovative. And the principal way we can do that is to gain knowledge, basic brain knowledge, because the brain is obviously the ultimate source of our creativity and innovation. You ask for a, a distinction between creating and innovating. Think of a spectrum, 
on one end of the spectrum is creativity, and on the other end is uh, innovation. It's a matter of the degree of originality. Creativity is very original. If I'm asked to give an example of something really creative, I think I'd fall back on Velcro. Until engineer, happened to be an electrical engineer, invented Velcro and brought it to market, which incidentally was a 12-year process, we just didn't have anything like that. And now that particular fastening device is uh, almost omnipresent. On that other end of the spectrum, an example of innovation, a very significant innovation, would be Gutenberg's reusable type printing press. Because what he did is he took existing things and he put them together in a new way. He built on the Chinese practice, by then centuries old, of woodblock printing, and he used the Romans' ability to forge metal, for example, to make coins. And he looked at his contemporaries in winemaking with their use of a screw press, and he put it all together, and he came up with a reusable-type printing press, which at that point in history had an impact that was tremendous, sort of like the Internet today. Creativity is kind of coming up with something new that hasn't existed, and innovation is kind of taking something that has existed and almost making it better or utilizing some new things in the world to make that system kind of better or optimize it or you know make it better. I really like your philosophy around, or, or at least your desire to dig deeper into these topics, knowing that there are topics that are skill sets that can be developed. We do a lot of training or you know, learning and development programs for engineers and companies, and we talk a lot about communication and public speaking. And I often start our training by telling engineering professionals that if you think you're either born with public speaking skills or you're not, that's really a misnomer. And I use myself as an example because when I started doing what I do, I was a terrible speaker and I spoke really fast and nobody could really understand a word I was saying. But with a lot of practice and a lot of Toastmasters meetings, I was able to change that. And I think that that's important, whether it's communication or innovation or creativity. I think people need to know that these are skills and abilities that can be developed over time if you work at it. I would imagine, Stu, you wrote this book because you feel that creativity and innovation are really important in the world of engineering for engineering professionals. And maybe you can talk about how that fits into engineering. Why would you say that engineers should strive to be more creative or more innovative in what they do? Well, I can think of three reasons. First of all, we've got some big challenges facing us across the globe, and engineers will either play a lead role or a very strong support role in those challenges. We're dealing now with how are we going to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide being allowed into the atmosphere, and or how are we going to remove some of it that's already there? That's an engineering challenge. Another reason why we should strive to be more creative and innovative has to do with the word engineering or the word engineer. I think many of us are aware of two civil engineering authors, Henry Petrosky and Samuel Foreman. They both wrote about the word engineer or the word engineering. And what they concluded is that the word engineer or the word engineering, those words have their roots in creativity. They went back hundreds of years, tracked the linguistics of the words, 
So when we say the word engineer as in a verb, when we say um, let's engineer a solution to this problem, we could just as easily say let's create a solution to this problem. Or when we use engineer as a noun, we say uh, she's an engineer, we could say she's a creator. The way to start our day as we sit down maybe at our desk first thing in the morning is to ask yourself, what am I going to create today? Get a creative outlook and start your day that way because to engineer is to create. The third reason to strive to be more creative and innovative is the satisfaction. The satisfaction of doing something that's never been done before and seeing it have a positive impact on the people around us and or the environment. So three things. We got some big challenges. We have a name that means creativity. And there's so much satisfaction to be had in being creative. I know that your belief is that creativity and innovation will improve if we have a better understanding of how our brain works. Talk about that belief and that statement. I think of the smartphone as being an analog to the brain in the sense that I am never in my lifetime going to understand all the intricacies of how this thing works. Just like I'm never going to have, God, it's all the books I read, going to understand all the intricacies of how this thing works. But I know if I can understand some of the basics, this becomes a tremendous research and communication tool. And the same thing with the brain. If I can understand some of the basics, I can be much more effective than if I'm sort of neutral about my own brain. In my book, Introduction to Creativity and Innovation for Engineers, the second chapter in that textbook is titled The Brain, a Primer. I don't want to sound egotistical, but I can tell you, based on my research, I know of no engineering textbook that has an entire chapter devoted to the brain. It's essential that we have a better understanding of the basics of how our brain works. First of all, I do have a copy of Stu's book here in the office, and I do highly recommend it. And one thing I just want to say is don't let the word textbook scare you. And I say that, Stu, because I have a teenager in high school, and when she has to think about her textbook, she kind of feels like, oh, it's a very practical book that I think a professional can and should use in their career. So I don't want you to think it's just for a student per se, because it does have really practical things that you can do on a day-to-day basis on your engineering projects in terms of trying to be more creative and more innovative. So I just want to mention that, Stu. I appreciate that because it is designed to be both a textbook and a reference book for practitioners. So Stu, you have information in your book about the brain, and there's obviously a lot of information out there. It's important that we think through that a little bit. Why, in your opinion, are engineering professionals reluctant to learn about how the brain works? I struggle with this. Let me answer it partly by telling you a story, and then I'll I'll share some reasons. Probably five, ten years ago, I was contacted by an engineering firm. They wanted me to speak at their annual meeting, and they said, give us some topics you could talk about. I suggested several topics, but one was working smarter using brain basics. I thought it'd be a great topic because I had a lot of experience with it, 
And they said, no, we don't want anything to do with that. They picked one of the other topics. I gave a presentation that was okay. But I asked them, why did you push back on the brain topic? And they said, brain talk turned them off. They said they worked in the trenches 10 hours a day, and they had no interest in peripheral information. And I said to myself, oh my gosh, if I could have given my presentation, I might have shortened the amount of time you spend in the trenches every day. I might have even gotten you out of the trenches because you would have been more productive. You would have been more creative. <laughs> you would have been more innovative. When I've had an opportunity to talk to students about the brain, they are much more receptive than the practitioners. Why do these people push back? The first reason that comes to mind, I call the yuck reason. Y-U-K, yuck. And I think this goes back to maybe when we're in middle school or high school and we go on a field trip and they take us to the local museum. They usher us into a room. It's typically dark and it has shelves. And on the shelves, we have many transparent containers. And in the containers, there's a liquid. And then there's something floating in the liquid. And one of us asks, what is that? And the host says, that's a human brain. And we go, yuck. Don't want any more to do with that. So later on in life, when Wallace comes and says, let's talk about the brain, they say, yuck, and push back. The second reason that I think we get pushback is people say, look, I've been carrying this thing around 24-7 all my life. What more can I learn about it? I use it every day. The third reason is, and I think this may be the dominant one, everybody's very busy. And so when I come or you come or somebody says, let's study the brain, the reaction is, I'd love to do this, but I just don't have the time to study the brain the way a neurosurgeon would. And that's why I get back to this. We're not talking about neurosurgeon level. We're talking about some very basic aspects of the brain, knowledge of which makes us more productive and more creative and innovative. Yeah, and what I'll say to that is just in learning or reading a little bit about the brain myself over the past few years, I'll give an example. One of the things that I learned is that when you're involved in a task and you get pulled away from it because your smartphone goes off and then you need to go back to it, your brain requires a lot of energy and has to restart. And so it's actually taking a lot more time than the one minute that you took to check your phone, for example. Exactly. And that's an example of learning a little bit about your brain that can really enhance your productivity. If I was to get rid of my smartphone when I'm going through an engineering plan or specification that I'm reading, that can end up saving me half an hour every time that happens or whatever the case may be. So I think to Stu's point, we can learn some very basic things about the brain. And I've read some books like Deep Work by Cal Newport, which is an excellent book. Another book called Focus, I believe it was, that was beneficial. I picked up some stuff. I don't think to Stu's point, we need to become neurosurgeons, but I do think that understanding a few simple things, especially in the virtual world that we're working on, where there's even more distractions these days for us, it can be very beneficial to the kind of work that engineering professionals need to do. So let's go a little deeper on this here. Can you give us some examples of how basic brain knowledge kind of can enhance your creativity and innovation? One example is awareness of our senses and understanding of the dominant sense. I think of us as having six senses. We see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, and we have balance. Neuroscientists tell us that the most powerful of those six senses 
is vision. And why is it the most powerful? Because they've determined that vision connects with more parts of the brain than any of the other senses. So all things equal, if you and I and members of, our, of your audience want to communicate, they need to give prime attention to vision. Now, for example, your assistant, as we were making arrangements for this podcast, asked me if I wanted to do this in audio or if I wanted to do it in audio and video. And initially I said, well, whatever works best for you. But then I got back to her and I said, look, I'd rather do it in audio and video than just audio because I think that I and Anthony and the audience will get more out of it because of the visual impact, whether it's your expression or my expression or our setting or what it is or something I hold up here. Vision is the most powerful sense. So that's one of the things I learned. Another thought is the interaction between our, our conscious and our subconscious mind. Our conscious thinking means we're thinking and we know what we're thinking. Like I'm thinking right now what I'm going to say next. Subconscious mind, we're thinking, but we don't know what it's thinking. And the neuroscientists tell us that not only that, but by far most of our thinking is subconscious. We like to think that we know what we're thinking, that we're in control of our thinking, but we're not. We're in control of only a minute part. The challenge is, how can we use our conscious mind to engage our subconscious mind, our most powerful mind? A simple example of how to do that is, and you sort of alluded to it before, you're faced with some task. Work on that task uninterrupted for, say, half hour. Then stop. You don't, maybe you don't feel like stopping. You don't have to stop. Just stop. Go do something else. Walk around the block. Take a break. Go to the break room. Have a cup of coffee. Do something else. Then later, an hour later, a day later, go back to that task. And guess what will happen? When you first started that task, you told your subconscious mind, this is important. I got to get this done. I need to make some progress. Your subconscious mind has been working at that in the interim, unbeknownst to you or to me. And when you sit down and take up that task the second time, there will be some new ideas, some new concepts, some new thoughts. It works all the time that way. We need to be aware of that, and we need to use it proactively. Third example that you already mentioned is multitasking, in which we think we're doing several tasks at the same time, is a total waste of time. Because as you indicated, Anthony, as you jump from one task to another, there's some downtime and then there's some startup time. And that's wasted time. The brain can only do one thing at a time. So give it an opportunity to do something for a designated period of time and then go on to something else. But don't jump second by second, minute by minute to other tasks. Foolish waste. Well, I could go on. There are so many basics that when we understand them, we can habitually apply them every day of our life. And we'll be more productive and we'll be more creative and innovative. Everything that you're talking about is extremely applicable in the world we live in today, where a lot of engineering professionals are still working remotely. When COVID came about, obviously, I would say you know 99% of engineering firms and everybody else was 100% almost remote, but still a lot of companies have kept a very hybrid environment up 
And I actually read a book not too long ago entitled The World Without Email by Cal Newport, which was an excellent book, which talked about all of these asynchronous communications that we deal with now, the Teams, the Slack messages, the emails, the text messages. And so trying to get through any part of your day without any of those, it's just not common. It's more common than not at this point in time. So we're just dealing with interruptions all the time. And so to Stu's point, if you're able to control some of those things and limit some of those things, you're probably in a much better position of focus than 95% of everyone else out there. And I think that that's an important thing to think about. Maybe this is what you're saying. When we work remotely, we have more control over how we spend our time. We're less likely to be interrupted. So it may turn out that for many of us, we're more productive and creative and innovative if we can spend at least a substantial part of our work week working remotely. We have more control over our time. Yeah, I think that's true as long as you control it because you can also continue to get all the messages popping up on your computer all day from people. So you need to really take the initiative, though you're not going to have maybe as more interruptions where someone can just walk up to you, which you don't really have control over, right? So that's definitely true. So Stu, do you have any tools that you could recommend to engineers that would help engage their brains? The most powerful tool I think I use, and I use it often individually, and I have used it often in a group setting, is unbelievably simple and remarkably powerful if our purpose is to generate ideas that we might not have thought about without this tool. The tool is called mind mapping. Let me go back to my book. I have an illustration here of a mind map. I don't expect you to see the details, but I want you to see and your viewers to see the format. This was the start of this mind map. And what it says is cold calls presentation. I prepared that mind map probably five, 10 years ago when I was asked to speak about cold calls for the benefit of engineering consultants who are calling on potential clients. And so I take a piece of paper and I write cold calls presentation. And then for maybe 15 minutes, I think about that and I add ovals representing any thought that pops into my mind. I don't evaluate the thought. I just put it on this paper, connect it up. I set this aside day later, Or maybe later that day, I pick it up again, and guess what? Now I have more ovals, and this thing grows radially. Now, a skeptic might say, come on, Stu, that's just brainstorming. It is brainstorming, but it's not just brainstorming. The difference is when people do brainstorming, somebody gets in front of the group, and they start a list on some white paper or on a whiteboard. And everybody in the room tends to look at the last item on the list and try and be stimulated by it. But with this system, it grows radially. So at any time, anybody can go to any one of those ovals on the outside and add something. I've done this again and again individually and with groups. It always works. It always generates an amazing number of ideas, whether they're ideas for trying to understand a problem or ideas for how to solve a problem. So you ask, what tool would I recommend? Mind mapping, flat out. Now I have 20 tools in my book. To me, that's one of the most powerful ones. One example that comes to mind for me right away, because we just did a project management training recently, is if I took 
kickoff meeting, project kickoff meeting, and I put it in the middle, I could probably come up, make sure that I'm coming up with all the things that I want to address in a project kickoff meeting, you know, scope, the schedule, the project, budgeting, you know, I can see where those things could be, where these maps could be really helpful in, in your engineering work and also in some of your personal endeavors as well. And again, it gives you a good way to think about things kind of in a nonlinear way, I would say. Whereas, you know, we do nonlinear, we always want to create lists as engineers. We want to have a list of things we have to do. We want to go up and down the list. But when we're forced to put things in circles and call outs and just, you know, randomly put them around ideas, it can definitely help us to stretch our brain a little bit more, if you will. And so I could see that as very beneficial. We're going to take a quick break here with Stu, and we're going to come back and we're going to wrap this one up by putting Stu on the civil engineering hot seat. We'll be back in just a minute. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Before we go on here, I would like to take a minute to recognize our other sponsor for this episode, Menard USA. Do you have projects where you are faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all the good sites are taken and you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, platforms, and more. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardusa.com. That's www.menardusa.com. All right, we're back with Stu Wallace. Stu's an independent consultant. He's had a long, successful engineering career and has spent the last 20 years as an independent consultant. We talked a lot about creativity and innovation based on his book and the research he did for that. But now we're going to turn to a couple of last career thoughts. Stu, you ready for the civil engineering hot seat? Oh, yes. Do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day, maybe a morning routine or a lunchtime routine, or just something that you do consistently that has contributed to your success? I don't know you call it a ritual, but every day I do like to do several different things. If I have something that I know is going to require creativity, like starting to write a new chapter in a book, I'll do that early in the morning. I'll do that first thing, because I know I'm better at it at that time of the day. Routine things can be done elsewhere. Second thing I like to do every day is have some physical exercise. Simple things like a brisk half-hour walk with my dog, or I do a lot of biking, a five to 10 mile bike ride, that's important to me. And a third thing that I do, stop to think of it, almost every day is read from a book. I always have a couple of books going, so to speak. And like late in the afternoon, I like to just take one of those books, sit down in a comfortable chair and read and think about the book. So the three things there are, do the heavy thinking first thing in the morning, Get some physical exercise. Be a continuous reader of books, constantly learning and thinking about new topics. Not very exciting, Anthony, but it works for me. That brings us perfectly into our next question, which is you read a lot. 
And I know like anything else in life, I think there's always maybe a couple of books that might be near and dear to one's heart or something that stand out for you from your career or from life. Is there a book or two that you feel have really stood out for you that you've gone back to or that has really made it in a lasting impact in your life that you could share? Yes. And I realize in retrospect, I have suggested this book and in some cases given this book to uh, half a dozen people that I've either mentioned it to or actually given it to them. The book is titled As a Man Thinketh. The title is unfortunate in the sense that in a gender-sensitive society, that kind of title doesn't fly well nowadays. But I can excuse that because the book was originally written in 1903. It's over 100 years old. Today it would probably be titled As a Person Thinketh, not quite as attractive, but nevertheless. It was written by James Allen, published in 1903, and you can go to Barnes & Noble today and I'll bet you they have it on the shelf. The beauty of the book is its message is we become what we think. We can control what we think. If we think we can do something, we'll figure out a way to do it. If we think we can't do something, we won't do it. He's constantly reminding us that our thoughts are so important. An example for me is I'm kind of a car nut, and when it's time to get a new car, I'll pick one that I think I might like to own. And I'll think about that car, and guess what? When I'm out on the street, walking with the dog, on my bike, in my car, I start to see those same cars because my mind is predisposed to learn more about those cars. So I would recommend James Allen's book, As a Man Thinketh. Two more questions here. The next one, Stu, if you think back on your managers of the past in your engineering career, and you don't have to name names per se, But if you think of some of your favorite managers, what was it that made them your favorite? Really what we're trying to understand here is what makes for a really good manager in the world of engineering? This is going to turn out to be the most difficult question. The reason I say that is I never had a formal manager, formal in the sense of the organizational structure, that I had a high regard for. And maybe that's one of the reasons I worked in the public sector, the private sector, the academic sector. I was just, as someone said, uh, as my wife kiddingly says, the guy can't keep a job. I did have managers that I learned important lessons from. So in that sense, even a less than adequate manager can still be a uh, useful teacher. If I'm thinking of somebody who really influenced me, Obviously, it's not a manager in a positive sense, but it's a professor I had as an undergraduate student. I was the first in my family to go to college. I was very naive about college, very naive about going on beyond the bachelor's degree, very naive about what it meant to be a professional. This guy connected with me and caused me to think bigger and broader than I know I would ever have done on my own. And so I'm, he's now deceased, but I'm indebted to him for the interest he took in me and the advice he gave to me. Formal manager that I admired just didn't happen in my case, Anthony, but more than compensated by that undergraduate professor. You know what happens? I mean, we don't always have managers that are helpful or beneficial to us, which is kind of why we do what we do here to hope to change that. 
and listen, but professors in the same right can provide great mentorship in our careers and our lives for sure. And I had some professors like that as well. So it's good to hear that. All right, Stu, I've got one final question for you here. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. So if you got into an elevator with a civil engineer, let's say they're earlier on in their career and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, what career advice would you share with that individual? I tell them to focus on four C's, four words that begin with C. The first one is competence. Learn how to do something that has value and you'll always be gainfully and employed and enjoy what you're doing. The second word is communication. Learn how to listen, how to speak, how to write, how to use images, and how to use mathematics to communicate. The third one would be something we've already talked about. Strive to be creative. Strive to every now and then produce something that's never been done before. You'll find great satisfaction be adding something substantial to the benefit of the people around you. And the fourth C would be conscience. Try to live your life so you have a clear conscience. That's maybe a little bit more than 30 seconds, but I like the four C's. I've used this before, Anthony, because it always works for me. It has stood the test of time. So Stu, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast once again. Stu Wallace, Stu is the author of the book, Creativity, an introduction to creativity and innovation for engineers, amongst other books. And Stu, what is your website where our audience can find the rest of your books and some of your other uh, articles that you post? www.helpingyouengineeryourfuture.com. Well, Stu, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Civil Engineering Podcast. I really do appreciate it. And thank you, Anthony. You caused me to do some self-reflection, which is almost always very useful. That's how we grow. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stu Walsh. He really is a legend in my eyes in the world of civil engineering. And I know he's humble, so I didn't want to say that to him directly during the interview. But he's great. He's been around for a long time, and he's put out a lot of great content. And I hope you'll check out his website and read up on some of what he's, he's put out for sure. And remember, you can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes of the podcast at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There are summaries of each episode, including the points discussed in the episodes, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during each episode. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.